Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God, and we're going to be looking at John. We looked at John for the last couple of weeks, and uh, we took a little side trail here and there because we're walking around John. John related to our own lives today. Uh, that's extremely important with uh, the gospel that uh, we make the Gospels part of our life today and what we're doing today. Uh, because I, I was re- listening to somebody talking to me about a Bible study that they attended and uh, they like the people at the Bible study. Uh, they think they're pretty good people as people go these days at least. But uh, they saw them spending hours talking about th- whether heaven is a singular word or a plural word, because you find it you find it as a, a plural word from time to time, uh, in, in even in the Gospels and in the Bible. And so, you know, like, is there more than one heaven? And of course, in a way, there is, and you could talk about these things. But it seems like they were straining at a gnat and uh, swallowing a camel because they're not getting a proper understanding of what the gospel is really all about. What the gospel meant to the people who got the baptism of Jesus Christ. So we're going to take a look at that because we're in... John 4, and we're going to take a quick peek at John 3, or at least part of it, because that's that's something that comes up on a regular basis, that uh, has some of the very common quotes that a great deal of theologies have been created around, and ideologies have been created around, and and we see in John 3, verse 15, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life, and there's several ways they talk about eternal life. Sometimes they say everlasting life, which we see in verse 16 directly after that. For God so loved the world, and they're actually using the word word that means constitutional order and system of government, which generally speaking, if you were in the Roman Empire, the world would be the world of Rome. If you were in Parthia, it would be the world of Parthia. If you were in China, it would be the constitutional order and system of government of China. That's It did not mean planet. Uh, eventually, we would take the, the Greek word cosmos and we would apply it to uh, the English word cosmos that, uh, you, you know, you'd have Carl Sagan talking about the cosmos and, uh, it, and it would mean, you know, the universe. But it didn't mean that at the time. At the time, it meant, and it's still defined that way in the concordance as a constitutional order or system of government. It's one of four words, or even five words, that could be translated into the single English word world. And so, knowing that, 
when he said he loved the world, he included loving the people of Rome. He included loving the people of Judea. Because they had a constitutional order and system of government. But he also complained about the government. He said that they weren't bearing fruit. And that he was going to take the kingdom away from the Pharisees, who sat in the seat of Moses, and appointed to somebody else who would bear fruit. And the reason they would bear fruit is they were following the way of Christ. And if you were following the way of Christ, that would be evidence that you actually believed. If you said you believed, but were not following the way of Christ, then you would not have eternal life because your claim to believe in Jesus, which Jesus talks about, was not real. The same as the claim that the Pharisees believed in Moses was not true. Because if they knew Moses, they would have known Jesus. And they didn't know Jesus. They were plotting to kill him. So what didn't they know about Moses? What didn't they know about Jesus that would put them in conflict with Jesus Christ and his disciples? And what they were doing. And the baptism of John the Baptist. Because they were in conflict with that as well. And we're going to see in as as we go through chapter 4 that this is a major thing and and we'll see it again in chapter 9 and one of the things that we talked about in John 3 which we did that show and that study a, a while ago I went through it again to see if there were things that we left out of course I added to our footnotes at preparing you on the topic but the idea of being born again was not new to Christianity. That it it was around... We see these texts of in Cuneiform and in Acadia and in uh, some... And we found, you know, we found thousands more of these uh, clay tablets in these languages. But there was a word, uh, uh, Ama-Argi, or sometimes just called Amagi, that produced the idea of freedom and manumission. And uh, these words were connected with the idea also of being born again. In this chapter 3 of John, we see in verse 17, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And of course, we'll see many Romans following the ways of Christ. We'll even find centurions following the ways of Christ. And there was a, a large movement at that particular time after Tiberius and, uh, you know, before Nero that there was an attempt to return to the values of the Republic because Rome was originally a Republic. It had no social welfare system through the exercise of authority uh, by the government. Its social welfare system was through charity and their military was uh, basically a well-organized militia. It wasn't a top-down authority. It was a bottom-up. And because people were in a republic, they were libera res publica, free from things public. That's where the word comes from. And they had been virtually redeemed 
from the Tarquinian kings, which were trying to make them subject, you know, 500 years before Christ. About 100 years, 200 years, 300 years, and they began to slide or backslide back into that bondage under a king. And, uh, you know, first it was councils and pro-councils. The Senate originally could not pass laws. The Senate was a body of old men to advise and help network the whole nation together so that in a time of conflict they could come together at one time and defend the nation. And they had their ups and downs. And, of course, Israel was a republic under Moses. It was a theocratic republic. But, of course, it was that the people were free from, you know, from the government, from the authority of the government. But they were not free from the authority of God. They had no king for hundreds of years. But then they began to backslide back into Egypt again. They began to want a king who could exercise authority. And and the very first king they had was forcing the offerings of the people. Till then, the offerings of the people were free will. And we will see that in John 4. That's a major part of the gospel of Christ. And it was objected to by people who thought they were following Moses, but were not. And, you know, they they talk about this idea that he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. So, this is right after he says he didn't come to condemn the world. He wanted them that they might be saved. But it didn't mean that he was going to keep them from being condemned. They are condemned already if they decide to go a particular way. This is one of the other things that we'll be tackling eventually. Do you have any choice? Uh, Is everything predestined? Well, you don't have as many choices as a lot of people would like to think. That if you turn down a particular road of belief, if if you take a certain avenue of belief, you're going to go down a road and down that road your options will be different than if you went the other road. All roads lead to Rome. All roads lead to the kingdom of God. The question is which direction you're going. Because if you're headed towards the kingdom of God, you will have different choices laid out before you by God. So this idea that you're condemned already if you go, if you're headed a particular direction. Well, in John, they tell us more and more in the Gospels, because John was written much later than Mark, and Matthew and Luke appeared to have been written after Mark, but almost a generation later, John was written. So many of the things that they established in, in the Synoptic Gospels, those first three Gospels, are not really addressed directly, but John addresses a lot of other things in that Gospel telling us a lot of other things that are trying to help us understand the gospel. And they're talking to and writing to people who already have a, a strong understanding of the gospel that was expressed in Mark. They understood what, it, what the Corbin of the Pharisees was. They understood the conflict between the religion, the public religion of Rome, and the religion of Jesus Christ. They understood the conflict between the religion of the Pharisees and the Corbin of Pharisees. 
and the Corbin of Christ. Because they were living it. They were actually persecuted because they sought to follow the Corbin of Christ. And we're going to take a look at how you can distinguish those two. Because that's a lot more important than knowing whether there's one heaven or many heavens. <laughs> and of course, in my father's house there are many mansions. That's a reference to the same idea. It's not that complicated. And we shouldn't spend a great deal of time on it if we haven't got the basics. Because they go in in verse 19 of John and this is the condemnation that light is come into the world and men loved darkness. If you love darkness, your choices are going to be much different than the choices that you have if you love light. As a matter of fact, if you love the light, you will be compelled, predestined to follow a different path than those who love darkness. Because those who love darkness are fleeing the light. And you you don't want to be going away from the light. You want to be seeking the light of Christ, the way of Christ, and going that way. And so they tell you in verse 20, that everyone who doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. And this is going to be absolute. He doeth the truth, which we see in verse uh, 21. And, of course, this is no different than what we read, that you judge them by their works, by what they do. You, you don't do anything that's going to make it so God owes you. God grants grace. That's going to continually be the reality no matter what you do. But if you choose to go a certain way, if you choose to do with evil, if you choose to hate the light, if you don't want to see the truth, if you want to cling to the idea that you already know, which we see the Pharisees doing, then you're not going to see the light. And you're going to be doing things that will bring you into condemnation. Christ doesn't have to condemn you. You will condemn yourself. Because you will hate the light. But of course there will be people out there trying to hold up an image of Christ and say, well now you're saved. You may not even know you're doing evil. Because the Pharisees didn't understand that they were doing evil. Well, we'll get into this chapter 4. If you go to verse 22 of chapter 3, they start talking about baptism. This was a critical part of John's baptism that came into conflict with the Pharisees. Who had a baptism too. They had a rabbinical baptism. So the question comes up, do we believe in the real Jesus? Is our baptism accomplishing the same thing or creating the same effect that the baptism of Christ was creating? In John 3, they talk about the baptism. They talk about those who believe in in the bridegroom and the bride. That's one of the places where they mention where the, who is the bridegroom, who is the bride. And while we talk about that in our recording of John 3, and, uh, but we're going to do John 4 now. So we'll, we'll take a look right at John 4. And there's a lot in here. There are several different sections. And of course, these chapter divisions are something that was added much later because this was pretty much a continuous uh, 
Revelation and John trying to, you know, over generation after the other Gospels were written, where they're trying to explain things that they feel is important to people who say they believe. And there was apostasy sneaking in and snaking in and different opinions, and they were trying to create a clarification with John. So we see right away in John 4, verse 1, when therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. And by departing into Galilee, what, why was that important? Why was it of concern that they were baptizing more people than even John? What was, how was this a threat to the Pharisees? Because we're going to see later in John 9 that they took action against those who got this baptism. A serious action against them. And so, anyway, I will be right back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, this verse 1, 2, and 3 is really a continuation of the chapter 3 that was talking about the baptism, talking about uh, the bride of Christ, which is the church. Uh, Christ is the king. The church is this caregiver. Uh, The bride is the caregiver. You can go all the way back to Proverbs. We see that, 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 you know, more precious than a ruby. If we understand that the altars of clay and stone were systems by which they took care of the social welfare of society through the Levites. And we'll see that as we go through this where you worship from the door of your own tabernacle, your own tent. Because tabernacle and tent, same word in the Hebrew. And that you are taking care of the needy in pure religion. Pure religion was visiting the and, and providing for the widows and orphans of society through faith, hope, and charity rather than force, fear, and violence. Not through covetous practices through men who exercise authority, but through love and hope and charity. This is the distinction between the church established by Christ and almost everybody else. We talked about last week when we were walking around John by looking at early America and the Two Penny Act, which I've added to the page on that at Preparing You. You can go, go uh, find out about that. That certain churches were actually paying their ministers through the taxing power of government. They're actually imposing a tax on the people to pay the ministers of the Anglican Church. And they were actually taking lawsuits to get double what they would normally get. During hard times, they were trying to get double what they would normally get in value through taxation 
and taking it to court to do so. And it was Patrick Henry who put an end to that. This was before the American Revolution, but these are the things that led up to the American Revolution, which to the people who were living in America at the time, they depended upon their colonial charters that you couldn't you couldn't have the king nullifying laws. You couldn't have people making laws to force you to pay your Anglican ministers. And of course they say the reason they could force that tax was the church was providing the social welfare. So this is going to be social welfare, the benefaction of the church through men who exercise authority. And of course we'll see that Christ forbid that in all three of the synoptic gospels. And John already knows that that's well established that you are not to be like the governments of the Gentiles who called themselves benefactors but exercised authority one over the other. The Anglicans just turned a blind eye to that back in the early days of America. And we see, I can name you, well, I do name on our page that talks about the Two Penny Act and, uh, you know, Pat, Patrick Henry and what they call the Parsons Cause, which was the case where the Parsons were trying to sue the people and force them to double their salaries <laughs> during a, a time of, you know, climate change that caused a drought that caused them to be devastated by the loss of crops. And this is what led to the American Revolution. But of course, those Americans have been taking care of themselves for the most part. Uh, There was no... This was the inkling or the beginning of a social welfare system through the state in America. And we already talked about going all the way back to 1090 where they were trying to implement a social welfare system by taxing the people... And and faithful Christian people stood up and said, we can't do that. That would be going against the gospel. Well, of course, in America, in Europe, in Australia, all over the world, every nation now taxes the people to provide for social welfare. Yet many of these nations claim to be followers of Christ. Some of them claim to be followers of Moses. And of course, if you're doing that, you're going against Moses. If you're looking to men who exercise authority to take away from your neighbor through force, you're going against Moses, you're going against the prophets, and you're going against Jesus Christ and the apostles. And you're not a believer. And people don't want to see that. They flee that idea. That they're like the deer in the headlight. They don't want to see it. But Jesus was not the same as John the Baptist. By John's own words, which we see in John three twenty two, thirty six, where it, it it is written that he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. But John is saying that he was not the Christ. In John 3.22, he says, uh, Christ must increase, increase, and he must decrease. 
and, and he's using words that that uh, when he's talking about decrease, he's talking about words that actually has to do with the rank and influence. Well, as I said before, John was the legitimate high priest, son of Zechariah, and he was not baptizing in the laver of Herod's temple, but was baptizing out in the Jordan River. And, of course, they were baptizing people at the laver. The the Pharisees were. As a matter of fact, they were baptizing people all over the Roman Empire into their system of sacrifice, which we would call their system of Corbin, because that's the Hebrew word for sacrifice. And this was the distinction between John the Baptist and what the Pharisees were doing. And now as we we go into this uh, gospel, they're saying that Jesus is baptizing even more people than John the Baptist. But John even goes out to say, you know, my baptizing, I'm just baptizing you with water. He makes a point of saying that. He says, but there's one that comes after him that baptizes with the Holy Ghost, which we also see in Matthew 3, verse 11. And he explains that water isn't enough. A lot of people say, oh, it's absolutely essential that you get baptized with water. No, what's absolutely essential is that you get baptized with the Holy Ghost. And when you're baptized with the Holy Ghost, you'll know you'll love the light. You, you'll, you'll seek the light. And you'll know that I can't covet my neighbor's goods through men who exercise authority because the gospel tells me that I can't, I'm not to be that way. All three of the synoptic gospels tell us that we are not to be going to men who exercise authority to provide for the needy of society. That's not pure religion. That's public religion. And if you're studying the Bible and you're, whoever's conducting the study is not letting you know this, they're not really teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ because Jesus was very clear. John the Baptist was very clear. The apostles were very clear that covetous practices not only would make you merchandise, the covetous practices are idolatry. To go to the pagan temples, the government temples of Rome, of Herod, to obtain your benefits was going against Christ. It was idolatry. It was going to make the word of God to none effect. And and John tells you, the people ask John, how, how does your baptism work? They knew they could go and get baptized at the temple by the Pharisees. They knew they could do that. But they asked him, because so, that's the kingdom that was there in Judea at that time recognized by Rome. But but he, he, he says, no. No. The, we have to do it different. Well, what did they do? That, was it the water that made the difference? No, there was water at the temple. And John tells us that it wasn't the water. It's that we're going to start taking care of one another through charity. You have two coats and your neighbor doesn't have one, share. If 
you have extra food and your neighbor doesn't have any food, share. Do the same in meats, he says. This was the distinction of the baptism of Jesus Christ. This was the distinction of the baptism of John the Baptist. And this is, this is the distinction that there, that we're seeing made in John. And, and quite a few of the chapters this is going to come up. So, where other people were being baptized by the Pharisees, John's baptism was different, and now Jesus was baptizing even more people. And exactly what was taking place in these lives of these people is they were now starting to look to the followers of Jesus Christ who were setting up a network of people that were taking care of the needy of society through charity. And and the process of doing this, which we'll see as we go down to John 4, was cause, called going to the the feast. And so I'm giving you a heads up on that. But as we read right away in John 4, 4, and he, because he's leaving, departing from Galilee, and he must needs go through Samaria. And he cometh to a city of Samaria, which is called Sikar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat. Now, they've gone away to the city to buy meat, but I thought he was at the city. It sounded like he was at the city. Where's the well in relationship to the city? So, is that really an important thing? We could discuss that. We could follow that up. But I don't think that's the critical message here. Although, even the use of the word city, we'll see how that plays in to the full message that we see here in quite a few verses that are given to this this event where this woman comes to draw water and he asks of her to drink. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, asketh drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. So there was clearly a bigotry towards the Samaritans. And of course, this is why he tells us the parable of the Good Samaritan. Because the Good Samaritan was doing what the Jews were not doing. And that was more important what they were doing than what they said. So, she's, he's talking to this woman because he knows. He knows that she will receive the word. And so he's taking the time to talk to her. And Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me drink, thou wouldst have asked of him, and he would 
given the living water. Now, this living water, it, again, that's a metaphor. And so he's, he's talking about what he's going to offer them, offer her, if she would ask of him, if she knew. Well, the woman's kind of confused by this, but she's continuing with the conversation. And the woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself, and his children, and his cattle. Now, it's interesting, she's saying, our father Jacob, the Samaritans are claiming Jacob is their father. They're looking to Jacob as the father. They, Whatever rights they have inherited, they claim they've inherited them from Jacob. So they're a part of the Abraham covenant, but not recognized by the Jews actually looked down upon. But Christ doesn't care about race. He cares about righteousness. And we don't know that the Samaritans are righteous, although he's talked about good Samaritans. But he continues with his conversation. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water, referring to the well, shall thirst again. But whoever, whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give them shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give them shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. So what they're talking what he's talking about is the flow of the Holy Spirit in the individual. The mem. You know, the Hebrew letter for mem has to do with the flow. And he's talking about the flow of the Holy Spirit welling up inside him, coming from inside of him through the grace of the Holy Spirit. And so the woman hears this, and she says, The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water, that I thirst not, neither cometh hither to draw. And Jesus saith unto her, Go, call thy husband, and come hither. So, it's very clear that Jesus knows more than he's giving on, and he's kind of setting her up. And he knows what she's going to say. And the woman answered and said unto him, I have no husband. And Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he who thou now hast is not thy husband. In that saidst thou truly. So, she's evidently going through a lot of divorces over the years, and been with numerous men for periods of time, and that's not the way God's plan is. And he's bringing it to her attention, but he's bringing it to her attention because she knew it was true already. That's why he's talking to her. Because he knows that she will receive the truth. And the woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. 
And you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Well, Jesus didn't say that. But she thinks Jesus says that because she sees the Jews say that. Well, originally when Moses was teaching the people how to worship, he was not teaching them to worship in Jerusalem. He was teaching them to worship from the door of their own tent. And we'll we'll talk about that. But let's finish with this lady and see how far we get. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet in Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So, in spirit and in truth, they have to get baptized with water, but no, it's more important that they get baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire, which is another added thing to the description of the baptism of Christ. Because Christ isn't baptizing with water. He's allowing his apostles to baptize with water, and this is going to have serious repercussions with the Pharisees. But Christ is one who comes to baptize with the Spirit and with fire. That's what John said. So we have to accept that. So what does that mean? Are the people today in churches getting baptized with water? Or are they getting baptized with the Spirit? A lot of them think they're getting baptized with the Spirit. And they think they're receiving the Holy Spirit. But we just read in John 3, do they love the light? Or are they still working iniquity? And of course, if we read all the synoptic gospels, we know that it's an iniquity to covet thy neighbor's goods. It's going against the commandment of Christ if you're desiring benefits that are provided to you by men who exercise authority one over the other. Because he said it was not to be that way with you. Patrick Henry knew it was not to be that way with us. He didn't think highly of the Anglicans who were forcing the contributions of the people through taxation to provide for their salaries. He thought that was not good. And he thought it was good to give the people relief from that. He wasn't overthrowing that law. But there was a need for relief. But he said instead of accepting the relief that these people had to, you know, that needed because of the drought, the Anglican ministers were suing for double the wages. And you can go read the article and find out what that was. But do you see that kind of thing going on anywhere in the world today? Who is the ministers of your daily ministration? We're going to see where the daily ministration of Christians was by charity. The daily ministration of John the Baptist was by charity. The daily ministration of Jesus Christ taking care of the needy of society was by charity. The pure religion of James was by charity. 
but the religion of Rome, the public religion of Rome, the public religion of the Pharisees, were by compelled offerings, by force. The 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 forced offerings that go all the way back to Saul when he forced an offering. And Samuel said, your kingdom's not going to stand because you do this. So if you look out in the world, whatever government you live under today, whatever world you live in today, the world of Australia, the world of the United States, the world of Canada, the world of Argentina or Brazil, whatever organized constitutional system you live under, if you're dependent upon men who exercise authority to provide your daily bread, your daily ministration, you know you're on a different road than towards the kingdom of God and His righteousness. You're on a road that is not righteous, that is not worshiping God by loving one another in spirit and truth. In truth, you've gone away from the ways of God and you've gone to the ways and the doctrines of men. We're, we're seeing this whole session all the way down to spiritual bread and uh, saving the world is dealing with this issues with the woman who is the Samaritan who wants this water of eternal life. And she's going to take the message down to other Samaritans and there's going to be a reaction to it. And we'll be right back to the keys of the kingdom. Welcome back to keys of the kingdom. And we're in John 4. And the woman at the well has been told about living water. And Jesus tells her that that we're not going to worship in this mountain or in Jerusalem. If If we go back all the way to... Uh, if we go all the way back to Exodus 33.10. All the people saw the cloud pillar stand at the tabernacle door. And all the people rose up and worshipped every man in his tent door. So how are they worshipping in their tent? They're not even worshipping at the tabernacle. They're worshipping from their tent door. So what we need to know is what does the word worship mean? The word worship means to serve. To serve God. Now, how do you serve God? Because God doesn't need any help from you. God's okay. He doesn't need anything. Well, you serve God by loving your neighbor as yourself. Because that's what he commands us to do. And you don't know how to love your neighbor without receiving the Holy Spirit. That, and But you have to thirst to know the truth. In order to receive the Holy Spirit. And if you thirst to know the truth, if you're willing to know the truth, even the fact that, you know, the Samaritan woman had five husbands and therefore had no husband. Because she wasn't following the ways of righteousness. And she was willing to admit it. So because she was willing to admit the truth, see the truth, not run from the truth, not hide from the truth, she was willing to go to the light. And so therefore she was willing to receive and capable of receiving the Holy Spirit. Now a lot of people are, were going to receive the Holy Spirit as Christ's ministry goes on. As Christ is glorified and he comes and he breathes on the apostles and says receive the Holy Spirit. And then, you know, like 50 days later, they actually 
have a visitation from what we we see as the Holy Spirit descending upon them and they come out Pentecost and they're able to do miracles and all this stuff because the Holy Spirit is that that well of water welling up in them. And even though they work daily in the temple for quite a while, they don't need the temple. They don't need Jerusalem. They don't need churches. They don't need cathedrals. But they have a network of charity to take care of the widows and orphans in the daily ministration through charity. This is a big shift because people had been shifting away from the ways of Moses for decades, for centuries even. When they first wanted a king, that was a shift away. When they gave legislative power to the Sanhedrin, that was a shift away. It corrupted the Sanhedrin. They got too much power. They became lawmakers instead of men who were to be filled with the Spirit of God defining the law according to the way of God. They became men who would make laws for themselves and for everybody else and exercise authority. And the way they got power to exercise authority is they set a snare and a trap. David talks about that snare and a trap. Paul talks about that snare and a trap, quoting David. What should have been for your welfare, the dainties of rulers, the benefits of rulers, the benefaction of men who exercise authority, became a snare and a trap. And it entangled you again in the elements of the world, and the rudiments of the world. Same word we see translated elements in one place is translated rudiments in another. And and Peter's going to tell you that it's going to make you merchandise. Well, this this same thing was going on in, in Samaria. And the people were in the city of Samaria and they were subject to ordinances of the men who were ruling in Samaria. The same thing would be taking place in Parthia that was moving away from being a republic to being, you know, like the Roman Empire and its imperial Roman cult. If we read in number 7-5, take it of them that they may be to do the service of the tabernacle, of the congregation, the tents of the congregation. And thou shalt give them unto the Levites to every man according to his service. Give them what? A tithing. Uh, a, a portion of what they have. They give it to the Levites and the Levites redistribute that to the needy of society. That was the job of the Levites. I mean, where was the welfare of Judea, of Israel, in the days of Moses, when he was setting up these altars? Where was the welfare in the days of Abraham? Because people need welfare, people need help. There's widows, there's orphans. There's When there's war, there's a lot more widows and orphans. And so you're going to need another altar where people come and give their offering and it's burnt up to the people who gave it but it's redistributed by the Levites if you don't understand that basics of Moses you're not going to understand what Jesus was doing and the Pharisees had lost sight of that 
They thought it was the blood of the animals and and the fire and the burning of flesh. But no, it was sacrifice, but it was sacrifice for a purpose, to take care of the needy of society, which bound society together, which people realized that, you know, it was it was a form of charity that strengthened the poor. Because especially when it was given according to the leading of the Holy Spirit in every individual man. In Numbers eighteen twenty one, and behold I have the children of Levi, all the tenth of Israel. And Israel was organized in the tens, hundreds of thousands. Even at the time of Christ, a synagogue was ten families. The heads of each of those families was called an elder. And they they gathered together in these ten families and that was called a synagogue. And Christ had his synagogues or congregations. Congregations of ten. We see that in Mark. Way back. Generation before, Mark is telling them that Jesus commanded his disciples to make the people sit down in the tens. Hundreds and thousands you know, there was 50,000 men and their, or 5,000, excuse me, 5,000 men and their families, which was probably 50,000 people, or could be that many. Because you got a husband and a wife and at least a couple of kids. Families were big then. And of course, we're talking about when they say 5,000 men and their families, they're really talking about the grandfathers. That's the elder, the eldest of the family. And his married sons, and unmarried daughters and all their children easily could be 50 people or or at least 10 people per family it could be way more and in Leviticus 1 3 we see if his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd let him offer a male without blemish now we talk about in other places what why these what these words male and all this stuff because they unmoor the metaphor unmoor that metaphor from its meaning people don't understand but he says he shall offer it of his own voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the lord now again tabernacle of the congregation that's the tents of the congregations that's where they're worshiping, from their own households, in free assemblies, with free voluntary offerings. And that word offering back there is the word korbanal. It's actually korban, but it ends in a vav in this particular verse. Because it's, it's talking about this korban that, that and, you know, the, the burnt offering as it, it's burnt up to them and it goes out to the needy of society. And the Pharisees were changing the doctrine of Moses. And the modern Christian goes to the Pharisees to ask what Moses was doing. So that's why the modern Christian often does not know what Christ was doing. But here we're seeing Christ telling this woman of Samaria what she needs to be doing. And the woman saith unto him, I know the Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. 
<laughs> Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto you, unto thee, am he, the Christ, the Messiah. Now, I believe that she actually brought this, you know, Messiah is just the Hebrew word for anointed, and Christ is the Greek word for anointed. That's why they say the Messiah cometh, which is called Christ in the Greek. When he has come, he will tell us all things. And Jesus is saying, I am him. I'm telling you all things right now. Verse 27, And upon this came his disciples and marveled that he talked with the the woman. He was talking with this. Not only was it a woman, it was a Samaritan woman. Yet no man said, What seekest thou? Or what talkest thou with her? They they didn't want to bring it up. (laughs) The woman then left her water pot. She left it. She came there for water. But she was so overwhelmed understanding what he was saying. And he knew she would understand. As she went her way into the city and saith to the men, Come, see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? He knew all this about her. And so she thinks he's the Christ. And it, and it says in the next line, in verse 30, Then they went out of this city and came unto him. But they don't tell us anything about the conversation. We have this idea that everybody was down in the city... And walked out of the city and came up to Jesus. And maybe that's what happened. But the word there for city is the polis. In this, what the polises were becoming, the cities were becoming, was a system of social welfare through the, the city-state. And they used men who exercised authority one over the other. And... And I don't believe that everybody in the city, in the polis of Samaria, or this particular uh, area, which we we see mentioned up here at the beginning, I don't believe that everybody signed up with Christ in his baptism. But uh, many men did. They came out of one system and entered into a system. So now, Jesus is not only baptizing more Jews than John the Baptist. He's also baptizing Samaritans. And, you know, through his disciples, he's baptizing them. And they're beginning to follow him. This creates a greater network of charity. More places where Christians will be welcomed. Because we see that Jesus, you're no more Jew or or Samaritan. You're followers of the way or you're not followers of the way. And, and this is what John is telling us. Of course, in the Gospel of John, written a generation after the other Gospels, this is going to go out to Samaritans. It's going to go out to Parthians. It's going to go out to... Uh, other Jews it's going to go out to Romans telling them about this Corbin which the Romans had a Corbin in their public temples but it was provided by forced offerings not by free will offerings which is what Moses taught 
what Samuel taught, what all the prophets taught. It's what John the Baptist was teaching. It's what Jesus was teaching. It's what Paul talked about. Not covetous systems of men who exercise authority. It's what James talks about. Pure religion. It's unspotted by the exercising authority of the world. That's what it means, unspotted by the world, that constitutional order and system of government that forces the offerings of the people that Samuel condemned and Christ condemned. But he didn't really come to condemn them. He says, you condemn yourself already if you choose to go against the words of God, which is, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods or twist his arm to get what you want. Even if your neighbor is rich, you're not going to want to tax the rich so you can get free benefits because it's not going to work. Because the rich will hire good accountants and lawyers. <laughs> they won't pay the tax anyway. <laughs> or at least they'll pay a lot less of it. The poor will pay more. And then when your government borrows money against the future, then you'll really pay more. Because the money in your pocket is not just in weights, just weights and measures. It's not even money. It's stuff posing as money. It's notes. And we'll do a show on that. That we have already done. You can look up real money at Preparing You. And you can see, why is that important? Well, you're going to find out how important it is. And every time you go to the gas pumps, every time you go to the grocery store, you're finding out why it is important to have just weights and measures and not depend upon the promises of men. Because all men are liars. And the problem isn't the government, the problem is you because you haven't yet repented and sought the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We see in verse 31, in the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, they prayed him, saying, Master, eat. They, they requested. That's what a prayer is. It's a request. It, it, it's bequeathing, or not bequeathing, but beseeching somebody to do something. And they asked his master to eat. And he, he, but he said unto them, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him aught to eat? Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to be is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Now, we're not going to go into exactly what that means, but there are forces going on in in God's creation. And we, we see that with the miracles of Jesus Christ. He's pointing to the fact that there are other things that can be provided if you are really seeking to do the will of the Father. And of course, it's not the will of the Father that you covet your neighbor's goods through men who exercise authority, that you twist the arm of your neighbor to contribute contribute to your welfare, or that you bite one another. We will see that where it says, be careful you do not bite one another lest you be devoured. 
Because if you if you judge that it's okay to take away from your neighbor so that you can have welfare, then it's okay for your neighbor to take away from you to provide for your neighbor's welfare. And what you do is you create a society, a, a, a city-state of dog-eat-dog, where everybody's taking a bite out of one another until everybody is devoured. So in verse 35 we say, Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the field. For they are white already to harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto life eternal. That both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true. One soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap, and whereon ye bestowed no labor. Other men labored, and ye are entered into their labors. In other words, you were gonna, you're gonna benefit from what others have done. And of course, who are those others? Well, all the prophets who have gone before. And told us, you know, that we weren't to covet our neighbor's goods, that we weren't to take a bite out of one another, that we were to love one another. I mean, Moses said, love thy neighbor as thyself. How is it loving your neighbor to send men to your neighbor's house so that you can get free stuff? To send men to your neighbor's house to take away from your neighbor, rich or poor, so that you can have free stuff. You know, health care. Civil protections. You know, that that was one of the things in the story of Patrick Henry. The, the, the ministers who wanted to force their neighbor to receive, to, to pay their wages at double the rate when, when those neighbors were having a hard time of it, complained about the jury. They, 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 thought they were deplorables. They didn't use the word deplorable, but they used other words to describe them. I, I quote the way in which they described them, but it was like deplorable. They had contempt for these people, these common men who worked and earned their own way. And of course, in those days, the jury had the right to decide fact and law. They had already decided that the statute was legal. The judge had decided this. But the people got to decide what was going to be the settlement. How much money was he? Was he going to get 300 pounds like he was suing for in the Parsons case? No, he wasn't going to get 300 pounds. Was he going to get a farthing, which is all that Patrick Henry thought he was entitled to? No, he got four times a farthing. He got a penny. (laughs) That's what he got. The the jury took five minutes to resolve the fact that you're only going to get a penny. But you have to think about that jury was in a society that most of their needs, most of their social welfare was taken care of by free will offerings, by helping one another. 
it was a lesson that was hard learned in the early days of Jamestown and and uh, you know Plymouth and uh, you know I told you the stories of the men of the sparrow who almost died they went off and they were going to do their own thing you know they were going to be regular survivalists and they were tough guys they had to be tough guys come across the Atlantic Ocean in an open boat a little tiny sailboat that you could put in my living room that, I think it was 19 men that came across on that boat <laughs> they, all the way across the Atlantic Ocean and they were going to survive in the wilderness but they didn't learn what the people at Plymouth were learning that you had to love your neighbor as yourself and they were all starving in a short period of time. And the Indians were stepping over their almost immobile bodies and were going to steal everything they had. And a couple of the people from Plymouth found out about them and dropped everything. Like Minutemen. They dropped everything. They didn't have to come and shoot the Indians or anything. They didn't do that. But they came and gathered them up and fed them and brought them to safety. And years later, some of them were proving up land, paying for it with money of substance, not notes. They were they were paying with just weights and measures and owning their own land and becoming free men. This is long before the American Revolution. Yeah, but it was those men who struggled and strived to actually carry their own weight and take the time to help their neighbor that were able to face the largest military power on the face of the earth at that time and win their liberty back. But of course, where they really won their liberty is in the years of learning what it meant to take care of one another. And Christ was preaching this. Many of those men came to America with an idea of religion and faith from the from the same churches like the Anglican Church. The Catholic Church was over in Maryland. Of course, there were there were the Baptists, the Puritans, but the hard times of the wilderness taught them what they needed to learn, and in learning that, it prepared them. Now, the good news is, we may be facing hard times again in the world, but we see as we we go through these verses. Uh, and, and he's talking about you know reaping where other people have learned things ahead of you done things ahead of you and prepared things ahead of you and you're going to benefit from them you have to approach this where you want to benefit the next generation and we'll see that when Christ talks about suffering unto me the little children that was a question that came up recently in uh a group of home churchers. What do you do with the kids while you're having a three-hour Bible study? Why aren't they with you? <laughs> What's the point of you learning all this stuff about the Bible if it isn't for your the next generation? John is written in the next generation. So, anyway, we'll take another break and we'll be right back to Keys of the Kingdom.
Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, we're seeing that the Samaritans came up to talk to him in verse 30. Then he talks to his own apostles about a meat that, you know, that he is eating that they don't know of. They will know of. And uh, it's it's the bread of life, just like he was talking about the water of life. And, of course, all this is related to us in John, who has been living this for decades now. And other Christians have been living where they were living by faith and hope. And they were being provided for by a force, unseen force, that comes to those who walk in faith, who don't walk in covetousness. Who, who care about one another are not prejudiced like, oh, you're not a part of our Anglican church or you're not a part of our Baptist church or you're not a part of our, you know, Catholic church and so you're separate from us. But they can do that in these denominations because the only church that they really belong to is the church of the state because they don't practice pure religion. They practice public religion. And so now the Samaritans... You know, when he was talking about, you know, whether you're going to enter into somebody else's labor, he's still talking about the Samaritans. According to this chapter of John that is laying this out, you know, a generation after all this took place. And he says in verse 39, And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him, meaning Jesus, for he the sayings of the woman which testified he told me all that ever did I did and in verse 40 so when the Samaritans were come unto him they besought him that he would tarry with them and he abode there two days and many more believed because of his own word and said unto the woman Now we believe, not because of thy sayings, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Well, at that time, was somebody else called the Savior of the world? Well, Augustus Caesar was called the Savior of the world. And therefore, Tiberius was called the Savior of the world. And what world is that? The constitutional order and system of government. And we know that Augustus Caesar had sent shiploads of grain as gifts to the poor people of Judea. And it was distributed amongst the Samaritans. And it was also distributed amongst the Jews. Because we know there was an ordinance, the the day of distribution from the Roman granaries came on a holiday that the Jews would not go out, you know, of their homes like the Sabbath. They could come on another day. Augustus wrote that law for the Jews, which is why, and we, we show that the Jews mourned the death of Augustus. We have this idea, that, oh, they all hated all Romans. No. They 
they know what side their bread was buttered on, leavened or not leavened. <laughs> and of course, the bread that was offered by, you know, it was grain that was offered by Augustus, it was leavened grain. It wasn't that somebody had put yeast in it and made it swell up. But we know that Augustus Caesar had that extra bread or extra grain to give away because Julius Caesar had murdered a million Gauls and sold their wives and children into bondage. And and there would be similar things happen to the Jews because they ate of that bread. And as you judge, so shall you be judged. But of course, all the apostles were Jews, but they were Jews who repented and didn't look to the Corban of the Pharisees or the Corban of Rome, but to the Corban of Christ, which was a free will offering. Today, in all your churches, people are arguing over, you know, this gnat, <laughs> or, or, you know, is heaven singular, or is it plural, or, you know, is there a rapture, or is there not a rapture? But what there is, is a need amongst the people to take care of the needy of society by charity. That's the need. It's not the need of the poor that is really important to the Christian. It's the need for thanksgiving. It's the need to take care of the poor in a way that strengthens the poor, but also strengthen you because you're living according to the way, the way of Christ. In verse 43 we see, now after two days... He departed thence and went into Galilee. So he's going back to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. And then he was coming to Galilee and the Galileans received him. Having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast. For they also went unto the feast. They, so they saw what Christ had done, the miracles that Christ did, and they wanted to follow him. So in verse 46, we see, so Jesus came again into Canaan of Galilee. Now this Canaan again is probably the same place that the wedding took place. Uh, and he came there in Galilee where he made, uh, actually he says here, where he made the water wine. And we've talked about you know, this place of reeds, which is what the word means that we see in the Greek text. It's a place of reeds. And there were numerous places that had the same names, wherever they had this, uh, a certain amount of water, and you'd have these tule reeds growing up in the water. This was called a place of weeds. But they, they, John refers to it as Cana of Galilee. And so this is probably a particular town, and there were other towns, and there seems to be a debate still to the, today as to where that this place was. Is that important? Should we spend a lot of time on that? Well, John mentions it in this gospel, so it may have some significance, but what he also mentions is that we are supposed to be having this other feast. This feast not based on the Corban of the Pharisees where we worship from the door of our own house. 
And that doesn't mean you can't gather in a church building. You can certainly do that. But it it means that you have to actually gather in love, which is gather in charity. And if you're not doing that, if you're still taking a bite out of one another that the men who exercise authority, which is already established in the first three Gospels, that we're not to be that way, out of the mouth of Christ, out of the commandments of Christ, the Messiah, the anointed, then why are you doing it? And, and can you really say that you're seeking the light? You're seeking the truth? That you're worshiping in spirit and in truth? When you're actually eating of the dainties of rulers? And of course, this is what Christ was doing. He was creating a system that operated by charity. And we refer to that church that was providing for the needy of society and pure religion as the bride of Christ. It's not a harlot. It's not riding the back of a beast. It's it's not depending on men who exercise authority to provide for their Anglican salaries through taxation, as we see at the beginning of the before the American Revolution. It was providing for the needy of society through love, through charity. Same word for charity, same word for love in the Greek. They just translate it differently wherever they choose to do so. When Christ says it, most of the time it's love. When Paul says it, most of the time it's charity. And and Paul says, if you don't have that charity, that love for one another, you, you got nothing. And if you're taking a bite out of one another, I don't care how long you spend in Bible study or how long you spend in your churches. You know, three hour services, four hour services, go, go four times a day or four times a week. If you're the rest of the week, you're biting one another. You're not following the way, not the way of righteousness. And you're not going to have the bread to eat that Christ was eating. You're not going to have the water that springeth up from within. You're just not going to have it. So anyway, he goes back to Cana of Galilee where he made the water wine and there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son. And he was at the point of death. He, for his son was at the point of death. And he was worried that his son was going to die. And, he, and so he went to Jesus. Then said Jesus unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. And the nobleman said unto him, Sir, come down. Ere my child die. And Jesus said unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him. And he went his way. Kind of like the woman. (laughs) Kind of like the Samaritans who believed. And what he said, they didn't have a lot of proof. 
You know, she, and they even make a point of that. The, the Samaritan woman believed because he knew all this stuff. He also, she was hearing what he had to say. But the fact that he knew so much about her, that helped her with her unbelief, clearly. But then when she went down and told all the Samaritans, and they they believed what she was saying, because she seemed so convincing, they believed the woman, I guess. <laughs> so they believed her. But they went up, and they talked with him. And they asked him to come and abide with them for days. They uh, listened to what he had to say. And they understood what he had to say, because they actually heard what he had to say. I'm not sure you're always hearing what Christ had to say in your churches. But they heard. And they said to her, we don't believe now because of what you said. They weren't saying she was lying. But they they now believe because they heard it themselves. Well, the question is, are you hearing what I'm saying? Or do you, you still want to go back to the churches that have delivered you back into the bondage of Egypt. Oh, what was the bondage of Egypt? 20% of your labor belonged to the government. That was the bondage of Egypt. You didn't really own your land anymore. We explain how you don't own your land. You know, if you, if they can take your land away after a couple of years of not paying rent taxes, excise tax, property tax, if, if they can tax you with inheritance tax. California is really big on that. I mean, you can have a will and everything. You're still going to have to go to court if you have any property. And they're going to take a chunk. Unless you're rich and you can afford to establish a trust and get a trustee in Nevada that holds the property, then then you won't have to pay. But all you regular people, you'll have to pay a huge amount of taxes. Because they believe in inheritance. They believe They have made statutes to rob the widows and orphans. It's on the books. Yet, they think they're Christians. No, they're not. Some of them think they're Jews. No, they're not. Because they're not following Moses. You're not a Jew. You you can call yourself a Jew. You can call yourself an Israeli. You can call yourself an Israelite. You You can call yourself anything you want. But Paris, Texas ain't Paris. It's Paris, Texas. It's something else. So if you're not following the way of Christ, you're not a follower of Christ. If you're following the way of Herod and the Pharisees, you're going to make the word of God to none effect and living water will not come up. Emotions may come up in you and you'll get real emotional about Jesus, but emotion is not the Holy Spirit. So, he told the guy to go his way. Thy son liveth. And the man believed him and went his way. In verse 51 he says, And as he was now going down, his servant met him. His servants. I guess more than one. Met him. And told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Then inquired he of them the hour when he began to amend. You know, get better. And they said unto him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew 
that it was at that same hour in which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth, and himself believed, and his whole house believed. Because he told him. He says, that's exactly when Jesus said, My son liveth. Jesus could heal him from way over here. You know, days it was going to take him to get all the way home. So there was a great distance between them. Distance doesn't matter to the Holy Spirit. It's not subject to distance. But it, it comes to those who are willing to receive the righteousness of God, the light of God. And you won't receive that unless you're willing to see what you've been doing wrong. If you're still blaming it on, you know, the Democrats or on Putin or on, uh, who, who do we blame mostly? You know, the, the New World Order, you know, Klaus Schwab. It's Klaus Schwab's fault. No. It's our fault. Because we're not actually going the way of Jesus Christ. We're not following the way of Jesus Christ. We're not headed. We have not repented, thought differently. That's what repenting is. And started seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness. We haven't been doing that. We, we've been going to churches that have a great deal of self-righteousness. You know, you're saved, you're born again, you believe in Jesus. Well, if you believe in Jesus, why aren't you doing the will of the Father? Can you, can you really, why are you doing works of iniquity? Why are you taking a bite out of one another? Why are you coveting your neighbor's goods to the men who exercise authority? If we don't do something about the legal charity in the world, whether you're in Australia or, or Canada, you're not going to find liberty under God, which is what the kingdom of God is all about. It's about being answerable to the God of heaven. I'll use singular there. <laughs> it's also the God of heavens. But he's the God of heaven. That's your father. That's who you should be praying to. Not your father in, you know, Ontario or your father in Sydney or your father in, I'm trying to think of all the capitals, Washington, D.C. You're not looking to them because you know they're not going to give you anything except what they take away from your neighbor or take away from foreign nations. Of course, we got foreign nations taken away from you now because you, you thought that was okay for years and years. So now you've got foreign nations taking billions and billions and billions of dollars away from you. Of course, you don't have those billions of dollars. So they're really just, your, your leaders are borrowing against the future of your children. So you're cursed every time you do these things that you think have to be done to make the world safe. You curse your children with more and more debt. And of course, that's exactly what Peter tells you, through your covetous practices, you'll be made merchandise, you know, human resources, and you will curse your children. Now, I know I repeat this over and over again. I'm always taking you back to that same place. But that's the gospel. That you're either thinking differently like Christ and the apostles and Moses and the prophets, or you're thinking like Herod. And the Pharisees. And Sumer. <laughs> and the Akkadians. Who all instituted eventually. They instituted systems. Rome did it. They instituted systems of social welfare through men who exercise authority. You know. Julius Caesar did it. 
by taking away from the Gauls. He would eventually take away from Egyptians, and he would take away from everywhere he went and conquered people. And then he would come back with all this treasure. And he would feed the poor. And the poor would turn a blind eye to those covetous practices that were wreaking havoc all around the world. And eventually that havoc, that havoc would come back and, and wreak havoc upon Rome itself. You could see, Polybius said 150 years before Christ, that, that if you become accustomed to living at the expense of others and depending for your livelihood on the property of others, you know, like property tax, <laughs> you know, that you're taxing your neighbor with property tax. We just got a thing in the mail the other day that uh, the North Lake County Health District I live in Lake County. I don't live in North Lake County Health District, but they sent the notice to us as well. It's going to link up with a, a, another medical service type people. They, they're going to have to pay them, and they're going to pay them with tax dollars in order to start a clinic that was built with tax dollars and uh, and occupy that clinic. And they still want, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year from their neighbors in the North Lake County Health District. There's there's a health district down in southern part of Lake County as well. We're kind of on the fringe of that, but the, there's taxes paid in this small community. I mean, very small community that go down to that other district and support it. But it's by men who exercise authority. If you don't pay it, the sheriff will come to your house. And that's the way we do it now, right? It wasn't that way originally. Paul Revere was with the chief health officer there, I think, in Massachusetts, you know, after the American Revolution. But most of their clinics, at whatever you call them, clinics or hospitals, were built by charity. They even had prisons built by charity. If they they talked about bonds, that people would issue bonds to build a bridge. Well, you could choose to buy those bonds or not. They weren't issued by the legislature making you buy those bonds or levying. That's something you've changed. You changed your thinking on that. We show you that in history. Where where these ideas were battling with Patrick Henry, and and you know the Two Penny Act, and the case you know with the pastor who was trying to the Parson case was trying to tax the people so that he could get paid more money, and that's not the way of Christ. The way of Christ is that you learn to care enough about one another to have the... And it's not the way of Moses. We just read that. Free will offerings. Voluntary offerings. If you did that, you would have nothing to fear from the New World Order. Nothing. Whatsoever. Nothing to fear with the coming economic collapse. Nothing to fear when mountains are moved (laughs) and disasters come. 
You would have not, because Christ would be your Savior. That God would be there and you wouldn't have anything to fear from the Egyptian army. You wouldn't have to even go and battle them. You you might have a sword at your side. I mean, the Israelites were all armed. But they didn't have to go fight that battle. Because they already put their faith in the righteousness of God. In the way of God. They were beginning to. It was going to be a learning process. They were going to have to take another 40 years learning that. And then when things got too good, they'd forget it again. Well, the good news is, is things aren't going to get real good for a while. Things are going to get bad. But hopefully everybody will wake up and they will pray to know and do in spirit and truth the righteousness of God. They will go that way, which is a different way than they've been going for the last generation or two or three. And that's why they need to repent. They need to turn away from that way, which was not the way originally in America. When You know, that people talk about the MAGA hats. What is it? Make America great again? Well, America, if it was ever close to greatness... Which doesn't mean everybody in America. There were bad things always going on. But if there was greatness in America, it was because they were taking care of one another through faith, hope, and charity. They were closer to the ways of Christ at one time in America than they are today. And if you repent and go back to the ways of Christ, not the ways of, you know, the doctrines of men, you know, the, the, eschatologies of men but the eschatology of Christ and if we return that way we will return and Christ will return to us until then peace on your house and may God be with you God bless You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.